It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, July 19, 2021. I'm Kelly Reese and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. On tonight's California report, PG&E's infrastructure may have contributed to the start of the Dixie Fire. And in National Native News, the Rosebud Sioux Tribe welcomes home the remains of children who died at the Carlisle Indian School. And the Canadian government announces a formal action plan on the recommendations of the national investigation into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. We'll take a brief look at regional headlines and weather before closing with a conversation between KVMR's Al Stoller and Dr. John Barentine of the International Dark Sky Association. This is the California Report. I'm Lily Jamali. PG&E says its infrastructure may have contributed to the start of the Dixie Fire that's burned thousands of acres and prompted evacuations near the site of the deadliest fire in California history. The company says on the day the fire was ignited, it noticed an outage near the Crested Dam in the Feather River Canyon. That's near where the 2018 campfire burned. In a preliminary report filed with the state, PG&E says a worker known as a troubleman said he saw from a distance what he thought was a blown fuse on a distribution circuit. The company says the worker wasn't able to get to the pole with the fuse until about 10 hours later. PG&E saying that's because of rough terrain in the area and the closure of a bridge. The company also reports that when the worker did reach the location, he noticed two fuses had been blown and that a tree was leaning on a power line and a fire was burning near the tree. He reported the fire and CAL FIRE brought in resources to battle it. The utility says CAL FIRE investigators collected some of the PG&E equipment found at the scene yesterday. KQED's Dan Brecky has been monitoring all of this. He joins me now. Good morning to you, Dan. Good morning, Lily. So, Dan, it's striking to see, it looks like PG&E is basically saying its equipment may have started yet another major fire. What are they saying happened exactly? Well, that's right. And so they noticed some trouble on a, uh, uh, on a line that serves this Cresta Dam in the Feather River Canyon, as you mentioned. And when a worker got out there, this is a very rough area, and uh, it was the same general area where the campfire started in 2018. Uh, it, it took the worker a long time to get out there. Part of the problem was he couldn't drive to the spot. He had to drive to a bridge that was out of service and then hike the rest of the way in, maybe another mile and a half. And the scenarios are, are pretty limited about what could have happened. It, it was a live power line. And so if a tree contacted the power line, that may have caused the tree to ignite or uh, throw sparks into nearby vegetation that could have started. The other thing that's notable here is that fuses blew. So that could have caused hot metal from the uh, fuses, which were behaving properly, right? They, they blew, which they're supposed to do if there's a problem on the line. And there was a problem, we know, because of the tree leaning on, on the line. It could have dropped hot metal into the nearby vegetation, and that would have started a fire. Those are the scenarios that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing shares of PG&E, uh, which we should mention past fire survivors own 24% of. So this affects them and their ability to get compensated for their losses between 2015 and 2018. Those shares have fallen about 3% as we talk uh, this morning, Dan. 
We've been hearing from residents in Butte County over the weekend about just how concerned they are about the Dixie fire. You've been closely monitoring it all weekend. What's its current status? Well, yesterday was a pretty bad day on the fire. Uh, it grew from about 19,000 acres up to around 30,000 acres this morning. Uh, the big development yesterday was that the fire jumped the Feather River. It got onto the uh, east side of the canyon there and uh, started burning toward communities called Bucks Lake and Meadow Valley. Uh, west of Quincy, and so there were mandatory evacuations there. Cal Fire is saying at this point the fire is 15% contained, but what that tells you is they have a huge job ahead of them. That's right. And we are hearing from PG&E this morning in a statement uh, they are telling KQED that the information they submitted is preliminary and that the company submitted this incident report in an abundance of caution. Dan Brackey of KQED, thank you so much for your reporting. You're welcome. Well, there are several other large fires burning across Northern California this morning. The Tamarack Fire grew rapidly this weekend as it burned south of Lake Tahoe in Alpine County. The fire has burned more than 18,000 acres and there's still no containment. Federal fire officials say it was caused by lightning. The Tamarack Fire has prompted several evacuation orders around the town of Markleyville, and there are concerns about the possibility of dry lightning in the area this morning. The fire has also forced the closure of parts of the Pacific Crest Trail and the cancellation of an extreme bike ride through the Sierra Nevada. Crews are making better progress on the Beckworth Complex fire, burning about 50 miles north of Tahoe. It's the state's largest wildfire, burning more than 105,000 acres. It's 82% contained. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor. PersonalCapital.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And Blue Shield of California, closing the health care gap since 1939. Learn more about their commitment to quality and fair health care for every Californian at news.blueshieldca.com. Los Angeles County has reinstated its indoor mask mandate for everyone, regardless of vaccination status. That's after the county has seen a more than sevenfold increase in new COVID-19 cases since California's reopening one month ago. The decision makes L.A. the first major county in the country to reinstate a mask mandate. The CDC continues to require masks for those who haven't gotten the vaccine. California's top election official has released the list of candidates who filed to run for governor in the September recall election. KQED politics editor Scott Schaefer reports. Secretary of State Shirley Weber says a total of 41 people filed paperwork needed to run for governor by the Friday afternoon deadline. That's far fewer than the 135 who ran in 2003 when Governor Gray Davis was recalled and replaced by Arnold Schwarzenegger. No prominent Democrats are running, but among the top Republicans are former San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner, Assemblyman Kevin Kiley, businessman John Cox, former Congressman Doug Osi, and reality TV star Caitlyn Jenner. Political consultants to conservative talk show host Larry Elder said he filed the papers, but his name did not appear on the list. None of the candidates will become governor unless a majority of voters decide to recall Governor Gavin Newsom in September. For the California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer. And that is the California Report for this Monday, July 19th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. 
I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you for listening. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Rosebud Sioux Tribe in South Dakota welcomed home the remains of children who died more than 100 years ago at the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. Native youth and their mentors repatriated the remains from Carlisle last week and escorted them home. A four-hour service was streamed online Saturday where people gathered at the tribe's college. Quilts, photographs, and other items lined the front of the gym for each of the nine children brought home. The service included speakers, songs, and an honoring before the remains were escorted out to the burial site by Native youth, veterans, and the community. They were placed in graves in buffalo robes and buried on the Rosebud Reservation. The California Assembly approved a resolution last week supporting U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland's Indian Boarding School investigation, which will identify boarding school sites and locate burial grounds. H.R. 60 was introduced by Native American Assembly member James Ramos. The U.S. initiative follows the discovery of remains in Canada at sites of former residential schools. Ramos says Holland's investigation will help end the generations-long guessing game about what happened to those who did not return from boarding school. His measure was approved on a bipartisan voice vote. Tribes that run child support agencies may soon get help collecting past due child support. KLCC's Brian Bull reports on a bill sponsored by U.S. Senators Ron Wyden and John Thune. The U.S. Senate has just passed the bill, which lets the 60 Native American tribes with child support agencies access the Federal Tax Refund Offset Program to collect past due money. Senator Wyden says this is what state agencies already do. The legislation empowers tribal agencies with the same tools as states have to ensure non-custodial parents are meeting their child support obligations. This is about fairness for our tribes. Through the program, the U.S. Treasury Department can withhold a tax refund of a non-custodial parent if they owe past due child support and send it to the child support agency to disperse to the family. I'm Brian Bull. The Canadian government recently announced an action plan on the recommendations of the national investigation into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Dan Karpinchuk has more. The long-awaited plan offers a framework developed by a large group of partners that include the families of victims and survivors, each of the country's distinct indigenous groups, and the federal, provincial, and territorial governments. There are several steps that all partners have agreed to make priorities as the foundation for a more comprehensive plan. They include funding for survivors and family, an oversight body with investigative powers to represent the interests of families, survivors, and indigenous communities, a public education campaign that also includes trauma-informed training for those who work with indigenous people. The action plan is getting a mainly positive response. Michelle Odette is a former commissioner of the Missing and Murdered Inquiry. And when I saw few of the uh, uh, suggestions or goals that they're proposing, for me, transparency, accountability, and making sure that we have several or different bodies where I can put my complaint or I can go to a tribunal or there's an indigenous ombudsperson, I was like, 
finally, we have something there that the indigenous organization or leadership will have to work with all level of government. A more in-depth strategy will be developed in the future with more specific priorities. Also, there is no dollar amount or funding commitment, but that is expected to be included in next steps. The Native Women's Association of Canada walked away from the action plan, saying it was fundamentally flawed and the process to get it done was politically motivated. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Support by the Sanoski Chambers Law Firm, championing tribal sovereignty and defending Native American rights since 1976, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Nevada County Public Health reports 60 new confirmed COVID-19 cases today. 122 cases are active, with five people currently hospitalized. Around four this afternoon, a vegetation fire was reported on Oak Canyon Drive in Penn Valley. Ubinet confirms the incident was a single tree that had been struck by lightning. A large grass fire began around 3 p.m. today along the American River Parkway in Sacramento. The Sacramento Fire Department reported a large plume of smoke near the railroad bridge over the American River just west of the Capital City Freeway. Fire Department spokesman Captain Keith Wade said erratic wind activity has pushed the flames in different directions. Traffic on the Capital City Freeway has been heavily impacted. Nevada County has been recognized with two achievement awards from the National Association of Counties. The awards honor innovative, effective county government programs that strengthen services for residents, reports My Nevada County. The association recognized the Nevada County Last Mile Broadband Grant Program, which aims to provide resources to new and existing internet service providers to invest in building local last mile broadband. Nevada County was also awarded for their Ready Nevada County Dashboard. The publicly accessible website provides up-to-the-minute information on current local hazards. Fusing data from federal, state, and local sources to provide the highest level of awareness available on topics such as COVID-19 and wildfires. Nevada County has announced their participation in Built for Zero, a national initiative of more than 80 communities working to measurably end homelessness, one population at a time. The county has been added to the last mile cohort, which means a community is close to ending homelessness for a specific population. Nevada County's population of focus is currently homeless veterans. The Continuum of Care and the county joined Built for Zero last year and have been working to increase collaboration and services coordination, as well as improve data on vulnerable county residents experiencing homelessness. Nevada County is aiming to end veteran homelessness by Veterans Day 2021. The Freed Board of Directors has announced the appointment of Carly Pacheco as the new Executive Director. Pacheco, the former deputy director of Freed, has worked with the organization for over seven years and had been acting as interim executive director since May, reports Ubinet. 
Freed works to promote independence and self-determination for people with disabilities and advocates for fully inclusive communities. Freed has offices in Grass Valley and Yuba City. There are currently 80 large wildfires burning in states across the U.S. according to the National Interagency Fire Center. The largest of these is now the Bootleg Fire in southern Oregon. The blaze covers over 300,000 acres, and national fire officials are warning it could take a major weather event to subdue the flames. The fire has created conditions so extreme firefighters have had to seek safety for the ninth day in a row. 21 Nevada County residents and two alternates were sworn in as new members of the 2021-2022 Grand Jury, reports Ubinet. The group of ordinary citizens was appointed to investigate local government agencies and ensure an effective government is serving in the best interests of the people. The previous year's grand jury investigated issues and released reports on topics ranging from NID billing and payment fees to body-worn cameras. Starting tomorrow through Friday, mainline and driveway paving work will begin on the 174 improvement project between Ubet Road and Greenhorn Access Road. Driveway access may be intermittently impacted for 30 minutes at a time when paving work is occurring. And now for regional weather. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, mostly clear skies with a low around 68. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 91. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms before 8 p.m. Then, mostly cloudy and gradually becoming clear with a low around 50. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 81. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, mostly clear skies with a low around 62. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 95. Coming up, Al Stoller speaks to Dr. John Barentine, the Director of Conservation at the International Dark Sky Association, who makes a compelling case as to why we should want to cross over to the dark side. I was invited a while back to introduce a group of inner-city kids to the night sky, stars, planets. When the sky grew dark, the kids looked up and got blown away. They were shouting, stars, stars! It was only then that I realized that living in neighborhoods where the lights never went out, some of these kids had never seen stars. Now the kids were seeing stars, but maybe I was seeing the future. We are losing our dark skies. We are losing the stars. Here on the ground, the problem is electric light. I spoke recently with Dr. John Barentine, Conservation Director of the International Dark Sky Association. Technology has made artificial light at night very inexpensive to consume. And the tendency, at least here in the West, is that as a resource becomes less expensive to consume, we consume more of it. Which makes for one more disconnect between ourselves and nature. That sense of disconnection is maybe harmful to our well-being. A dark sky is an indication of conditions on the ground that are conducive to things like the well-being of wildlife. Um, There's interactions with human health, perhaps, public safety. So it's much more than just whether or not we can see the stars. It's an overall indicator of the health of the nocturnal environment. And that in turn feeds back to our own sense of well-being here on this planet. Social scientists talk about nature deficit syndrome. Just before my conversation with John, I've been watching the sky with some buddies. 
This was a few days after the SpaceX Corporation had launched a clutch of Starlink satellites, satellites designed to provide 5G phone service to the whole wide world. Looking toward the west, we saw one satellite, then another, then a third, and a fourth. Four of the tens of thousands of satellites scheduled to launch over the next few years. These satellites will light up what had been a dark sky. Professional astronomers are already programming their telescopes to turn on and off to avoid contaminating their data with light pollution from these satellites. One of the key elements of warfare is that of surprise. You gain a super advantage if you can attack without warning. With the invention of the airplane, surprise remained key. The first manual of aerial combat, written during World War I, advised a pilot to attack his opponent from out of the sun. The sun's glare would make him invisible until it was too late. That same strategy, flying out of the sun, still applies to space warfare. Earth is always under attack. Just outside Flagstaff, Arizona, there's a three-quarter mile wide hole punched into the ground 50,000 years ago by a meteor. The dinosaurs were destroyed by an asteroid impact. Spacewatch is a project run out of the University of Arizona to keep an eye on space nearby to look for things that could smash into Earth. Cluttering the sky with satellites, especially in the east and the west, could make planetary protection very difficult. The number of objects is set to increase rapidly, and maybe we don't quite appreciate all of the implications of that just yet. Looking for asteroids that are coming at our planet from roughly the direction of the sun, where we're really blind. So if we were going to have a lot of bright objects around dusk and dawn, in the same part of the sky that we are trying to find these asteroids that may threaten our planet, it really does call into question whether all of these satellites, especially at those times of, of the day, are harming our ability to be able to see those threats when they are still inbound. This is much more than just whether or not we can see the stars at night. This may even represent some type of threat to our continued existence on this planet. Planetary defense, the international cooperation for regulating the orbital space around the Earth really has not quite caught up to the reality on the ground with the rapid pace of technology development. We are still figuring out who properly owns the orbital space around the Earth. John, I'm sure we're going to be talking about this again. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation, Alan. I'm speaking with Dr. John Barentine, the Conservation Director for the International Dark Sky Association. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller. That's our newscast for tonight, Monday, July 19, 2021. We get support from Atmosphere Design Build, a full-service architecture and construction firm creating distinctly modern, high-performance buildings throughout California, specializing in energy-efficient, healthy, net-zero energy homes for a low-carbon future. AtmosphereDesignBuild.com and 
Carmen's Garden and Greenhouse, locally owned since 2012 on Loma Rica Drive, Grass Valley. Stocking greenhouse frames, coverings, and components, down-to-earth amendments, and IPM products. Open Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. K-A-R-M-E-N-S, garden.com. Stick around. At 6.30, it's WINGS, the Women's International News Gathering Service. On today's episode, the world's purported oldest ongoing feminist radio station, Radio Oracle. Reporter Liv Goldbranson and Editor-in-Chief Ingrid Warglum speak about what contributes to the Norwegian station's success, which, much like KVMR, is based upon a community of volunteers and persistent positive attitude towards new recruits. Then, at 7, we have Democracy Now! with host Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Thank you.